finality yeah. becomes uh, something of a term of legal art. And uh, so is only the sentencing part re- non-final? Is the entire thing non-final? Is there a, can you be halfway pregnant? Welcome to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. And now your hosts, Tim Cole and Jeff Lewis. Welcome, everyone. I am Jeff Lewis. And I'm Tim Kowal, California Department of Podcasting License Pending References Check. On the California Appellate Law Podcast, we talk about appellate things and trial court things. Both Jeff and I uh, work about half and half in the trial courts and appellate courts. We try to give our listeners some actionable insights in both of those venues. Welcome to episode 38 of the podcast. And a quick thank you to our podcast sponsor, Case Text. Case Text is a legal research tool that harnesses AI and a lightning-fast interface to help lawyers find case authority fast. I've been a subscriber since 2019 and highly endorsed the service. And our listeners can receive a 25% lifetime discount available to them if they sign up at casetext.com slash calp. That's casetext.com slash C-A-L-P. Okay, so Jeff, we were going to cover some uh, some recent cases and news this week. We haven't uh, we haven't made it to any in the last couple of episodes. So. We're going to cover with our audience today one high court case holding that the California Prop 57, a voter initiative which required all criminal charges against minors be tried in juvenile courts, was is retroactive. And as a result, a now 40-year-old criminal convict who had murdered his mother at age 16 may soon be released. We'll also cover the Los Angeles Appellate Court holding that handed District Attorney George Gascone a loss on his assertion of prosecutorial discretion in refusing to enforce the three strikes law. And moving on to anti-slap procedure, there was another dissent recently in the Ninth Circuit arguing that anti-slap denials should uh, should not be immediately appealable. And on uh, the expert witness procedure front, a state appellate court uh, recently held that the exclusion of expert opinions is structural error on appeal, and it requires automatic reversal. And after that, we'll turn to some recent court news. So the first case that we're going to talk about is out of the California Supreme Court. It is People versus Padilla. The Supreme Court held that California's Prop 57 is retroactive in all non-final cases. So all minors must be charged in juvenile court under Prop 57. But here, the defendant, Padilla, who murdered his mother by stabbing her 45 times, was convicted way back in 1999. So that seemed pretty final. But the the United States Supreme Court held back in 2012 in Miller versus Alabama that mandatory sentencing of juveniles is cruel and unusual, violation of the Eighth Amendment. So Padilla had successfully filed for habeas back in 2014 and appeals had been rattling around since then. He got resentenced to the same life without possibility of parole, but he appealed that in 2016. Uh, In the meantime, the United States Supreme Court handed down clarification of the Miller case in Montgomery versus Louisiana about the analysis required for sentencing of minors. So Padilla got the resentencing reversed and remanded again. So he's keeping this appeal alive. So So to that extent, Uh, Ultimately, the California Supreme Court would find that it was non-final. So by 2020, Proposition 57 passed. Padilla saw his open shot on the goal and he took it. Although he had only sought habeas of his sentencing, the sentencing aspect of his conviction, uh, now he would argue the conviction too was improper under Prop 57. 
And so writing for the four, uh, four to three majority, uh, Justice Liu held that Prop 57 is ro- retroactive in non-final cases. Was Padilla's case final? No, the majority held because the habeas proceedings had made the final judgment non-final. Writing in dissent, uh, Justice Corrigan, joined by the Chief Justice and a pro tem justice, argued, quote, the majority's suggestion that a long final case can subsequently become non-final essentially treats finality like a switch that can be toggled on and off. And uh, also the result will be that if the trial court finds that Padilla should have been charged originally in juvenile court, now applying Prop 57, quote, the juvenile court could no longer assert jurisdiction over him. His immediate release would be required regardless of any sign of rehabilitation or consideration of public safety. And uh, uh, Justice Corrigan went on, it seems highly unlikely that voters intended by silence to dispense with these carefully crafted procedures for the treatment of youth offenders facing life without opportunity of parole terms. Jeff, you have any reactions to, to that? Yeah, I can understand why it was such a close decision. You know, my gut tells me when the law is amended to make the law better, to improve upon the prior law, that those who can take advantage should be able to take advantage of a new statutory scheme, even though the result is counterintuitive here to have an adult who's gotten a number of days in court, the benefit of juvenile law. Yeah. Yeah. I found um, initially I, I thought Justice Corrigan's arguments were better, uh, but I, I find myself ambivalent about, uh, about him. I think both of the opinions have a point there. The question about what makes a final decision, I think, vexed both the majority and the dissent here because yeah. we, it was certainly a final decision. But once habeas was granted, certainly it's not literally final. So finality yeah. becomes uh, something of a term of legal art. And uh, so is only the sentencing part re- uh, non-final? Is the entire thing non-final? Is there a, can you be halfway pregnant? It kind of, can you be halfway final? That seems to be what the uh, Justice Corrigan thinks that no, uh, notwithstanding what's happening with the sentencing, we can't go back and touch the original guilty verdict. But that seems to be yeah. the opening that's left uh, after the Padilla case. Interesting, interesting case. Hey, next, uh, another criminal or sort of criminal case. I want to talk about this case involving uh, Los Angeles Deputy District, excuse me, Los Angeles Des- District Attorney uh, Gascon. Uh, on June 2nd, uh, the California Court of Appeal resolved an issue involving how much discretion the DA's office has with respect to the three strikes law. Now, in LA County, the voters you know, elected a very progressive district attorney, Gascon. And one of the things he uh, has done is he directed all his deputy DAs not to fully enforce the three strikes law, which gives longer sentences to repeat criminal offenders. And a group of DAs sued uh, Gascon over this new policy. And at the trial level, the, the deputy DAs won. The court agreed and issued an injunction reversing the policies, meaning giving the deputy DAs the power back to enforce the three strikes law. This week, in an opinion issued by second, the Second District Court of Appeal, the court held that the LADA was properly enjoined from directing deputy DAs to no longer enforce the three strikes law. And bottom line, Gascon can no longer direct his deputy DAs not to plead or to seek three strike sentencing enhancements. But deputy district attorneys do retain the discretion to dismiss such enhancements. So at least at the front end, 
uh, the deputy D district attorneys are not going to be uh, hamstrung by Gascon's uh, policy anymore regarding the uh, three strikes law. I found this case interesting reading in terms of the separation of powers. Anytime you have different branches of government telling each other what to do, it's always uh, interesting reading. What did you think, Tim? Yeah, yeah, I agree with the with that separation of powers angle to it. It was interesting seeing the internecine dispute inside the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. Uh, obviously, a significant contingent of deputy DAs there are not happy with uh, with the policy here, and uh, obviously they got a win here out of the uh, out of the Court of Appeal. All right, so uh, uh, moving on to anti-slap denials. Anti-slap denials may not be appealable much longer in the Ninth Circuit anyway, when the plaintiff defeats a meritless slap motion, Jeff, you know that the, the plaintiff may still have to face an appeal, even if it's a meritless appeal. And that's what happened twice in the now seven-year-old case of Flo and Eddie Inc. versus Pandora Media LLC. This was a case out of the Ninth Circuit in, in June 2022. The plaintiffs are the founders of the Turtles. They sued Pandora for failing to pay for for playing Turtles songs on their internet music platform, Pandora filed anti-slap motions, arguing that playing the music was protected speech. Pandora lost its slap challenge, but it took two appeals and seven years to get there. And uh, writing a concurrence, Judge Daniel Bress said he thought this was too much to take. The federal rules do not provide for the appealability of denials of anti-slap motions. Instead, they have been held to be appealable as collateral orders. But the definition of a collateral order is an order that, among other things, is, quote, completely separate from the merits of the, of the action. And an anti-slap motion in the second prong explicitly requires the moving party to prove the complaint lacks merit. So almost by definition, an anti-slap denial is not a collateral order. Uh, I wonder what you thought about that, Jeff, as, uh, as our resident uh, anti-slap guru. Well, you know, I'm all in favor of federal courts enforcing uh, slap uh, laws. But this particular case, seven years of battling just over a slap, it seems like uh, this case is more like a smack strategic motion against credible claim than a slap. And uh, I wonder if it's time for a SCOTUS to weigh in and resolve the split in authority about whether slaps are actually procedural or substantive under the Erie Doctrine and resolve these issues. Yeah, that has been a, a Nettleson, Nettleson problem, the way that the, that the federal courts, the Ninth Circuit anyway, has, uh, has applied California's anti-slap statute is by kind of grafting it onto federal uh, rules of civil procedure 12 yeah. and, uh, as a motion to dismiss and or a, uh, a Rule 56 motion for summary judgment. But last time I read uh, those statutes, they didn't say anything about public participation or right of petition. So, you, so, uh, so the courts are doing doing something that's not quite obvious or uh, intuitive there i think it we'd be, all be better off if congress got in the act and and passed a federal anti-slap statute absolutely they could even call it tim's law now that you've suggested it <laughs> right and, uh, and and just to be clear for our listeners the uh, the flow and Eddie versus pandora case the, the majority does not accept the view that anti-slap denials are non-appealable they are still appealable immediately as collateral orders but the uh, judge, uh, judge Bress's concurrence notes that that he has several other circuits uh, in his uh, in his pocket, so to speak, or uh, on his side on the question of whether a denial of an anti-slap motion is a collateral order. 
Oh, well, we'll put a link to the case in our case notes and maybe even a link to a turtle song. See if we could be embroiled in litigation. Right. Okay. Moving to, to trial procedure involving expert witnesses. Exclusion of expert opinion was recently held to be a structural error on appeal that requires automatic reversal. This is cases Klein versus Zimmer Inc. This was one of many lawsuits filed by hip replacement patients against the maker of the Durham Cup. That's Zimmer Inc. The trial court held there that the uh, rather the the court of appeal held that the trial court committed structural error when it improperly excluded the defendant Zimmer's expert who was put on to rebut the plaintiff's expert. This is surprising, Jeff, because normally trial court rulings on evidence are reviewed for abuse of discretion and errors are only reversed if the appellant can show that the that the exclusion of evidence affected the result. But here, the exclusion of a rebuttal expert resulted in automatic reversal. Basically, what happened is the plaintiff offered an expert to opine that the Durham Cup was the cause of his pain and suffering. And in rebuttal, Zimmer wanted to put on an expert to, sh- to opine that there were other possible causes. Now, those other possible causes were not more likely than not. They didn't arise to a 51% probability that they were the cause. And so on that ground, the trial court said, no, it's not coming in. The rule is that uh, expert opinion is only allowed if it uh, if the opinion is that it's more likely than not to be the cause. Well, the court of appeal rejected that. A defendant's expert does not have to prove that does not uh, does not have to offer a witness to prove a likelihood more than fifty percent. That fifty or fifty one percent threshold is the relates to the plaintiff's burden of proof, and the defendant does not have the burden of proof as long as a defendant's expert can offer another plausible theory of causation. That is acceptable, and the opinion could not be excluded on that basis. And where the excluded rebuttal opinion was the only rebuttal opinion, the exclusion led to a one-sided presentation of the evidence, and this, the Court of Appeal held, was structural error, and structural errors require reversal automatically. So I thought from this, Jeff, that uh, that maybe the upshot here is that, you know, look, I, I noticed that the trial judge is, is a former personal injury defense attorney. That suggested to me that despite the care and experience devoted to this trial, that trial procedure governing experts is sometimes very important, obviously, and very variable. You know, sometimes you don't know how these these things are going to come out. The rule that the Court of Appeal had held here was not uh, was not expressed formally in the case law. So this is this is a new rule. So to the extent that expert issues could be crystallized in a motion eliminate. You know, and uh, an emotion eliminate is uh, is granted. Let let's say let's say that that emotion eliminate for that rebuttal expert w- had been granted, and uh, defendant's rebuttal expert was was uh, excluded at the emotion eliminate stage. In this case, Jeff, would you advise taking up a writ petition on that rather than go through a whole trial that might wind up having to be redone because of this de facto structural error in excluding the the expert? I suppose, you know, I love it when motions in limine are ruled on well in advance of uh, the first day of trial. But if you're in one of these courtrooms where motions in limine are, are ruled on moments before uh, opening statements or jury selection, uh, I don't know that I would uh, bother because I don't think you could get relief from the Court of Appeal in, in time for it to be meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't hold out a lot of hope. But if it's a, uh, although I, I guess on the other hand, if, if this happens now with the uh, with this Zimmer case uh, in your back pocket, you know that you can get an automatic reversal if your rebuttal expert is excluded on this basis. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, that that does it for the uh, for the cases today. Let's move on to some other news, some other uh, uh, appellate news in the uh, out of our courts. Yeah, you know, we covered on a few different episodes this uh, delay up in the third district court of appeal. Cases taking years to be heard, and at one point, a prominent uh, appellate lawyer brought a writ petition to draw attention to this uh, issue of long delays. The Supreme Court denied that petition. To, the lawyer didn't get anywhere. But although that writ was not successful, there was big news this month about these delays. The Commission of Judicial Performance issued a statement admonishing presiding Justice Vance Ray of the 3rd District for years of delays. He was asked to retire, and he may never hold judicial office again. The disciplinary document was pretty harsh in its findings, yet I think rather light in its discipline. It found that Justice Ray had engaged in a pattern of delay in deciding around 200 appellate matters over a 10-year period. In one matter, appellant had received a six-year prison term and had served that sentence while the appeal was pending. And between uh, January 2011 and March 2021, uh, the commission found that Justice Ray failed to properly exercise his administrative and supervisory authority to provide a forum for the expeditious resolution of appellate disputes. So he's retired, no actual discipline other than being asked to resign and not to hold office again. There are now three vacancies in this district. Governor Governor Newsom has an opportunity to make a real impact in the administration and speed of appeals. Uh, in the third district with new appointments. Yeah. Well, I can't help but think of, uh, you know, we've covered John Eisenberg's uh, project to try to get address some of these delays and uh, he was not able to get traction in the Supreme court or in the uh, judicial council, but that doesn't mean that uh, those complaints were not heard or heeded. They, uh, it looks like, it looks like we're just seeing the court system deal uh, in the commission of judicial performance, deal with these problems in its own way. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in other news, in the first district, I've got a case coming up. uh, I'm arguing in early July, and I was excited to read that the first district has amended their rules to provide for uh, focus letters and tentative uh, rulings. Learned about that from Ben Schott's uh, scan blog. We'll we'll link in the case notes. But uh, I've got an argument coming up uh, first week of July, so I'm really hoping to get a a possible focus letter or tentative ruling uh, in my case. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, to see that. I think that's. Uh, you know, from uh, from a lot of us practitioners' lips to uh, the first district district's ears, uh, I hope that uh, I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to this and, and hope that other districts follow suit. All right, there was a, a one more case I lied about uh, being finished covering cases. There's one more case we wanted to cover briefly out of the third district court of appeal. Jeff, is a bumblebee a fish? That depends. Depends. Well, you're you're uh, you're right. The, uh, the the third district answered yes in Almond Alliance of California versus the Fish and Game Commission. The case involved the interpretation of the California Endangered Species Act. the The state act is more limited than the federal act. The state Endangered Species Act only allows listing of endangered species that are quote bird, mammal, fish, amphibian, reptile, or plant. And bumblebee doesn't quite fit neatly into any of those categories. Fish, on the other hand, is defined to include, quote, invertebrates. And the definition does not specify that the invertebrate has to be an an aquatic invertebrate. So the court held that the legal definition of invertebrate was not limited to aquatic life. So a bumblebee can be a fish. And so it is. 
Yeah. So I think we've uh, established in this podcast that bumblebees can be fish and adults can be juveniles. That's the upshot of this episode. And I think that wraps us up for today. And again, we yeah. want to thank Case Text for sponsoring the California Appellate Law Podcast. And we include links in, uh, to the cases we discuss in the show notes. All of those links are to Case Text and listeners of the podcast can find a 25% discount available to them if they sign up at casetext.com slash C-A-L-P. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please uh, email us at info at calpodcast.com. And in our upcoming episodes, look for tips on how to lay the groundwork for an appeal when preparing for trial. See you next time. You have just listened to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. For more information about the cases discussed in today's episode, our hosts, and other episodes, visit the California Appellate Law Podcast website at calpodcast.com. That's calpodcast.com. Thanks to Jonathan Caro for our intro music. Thank you for listening, and please join us again 